You may open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When you read Exodus 19, as we did last evening, it is a very different God than what the vast majority of pulpits and churches, Sunday school classes, Bible story books, and other books present about God. Very different. Yet, as was mentioned in a couple of the prayers, a way has been provided for all of us to come boldly into His presence. Because He shall see of the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. Son Christ, do you still love the doctrine of the satisfaction of Jesus Christ? Amen. It's a glorious doctrine. Hardly anyone even knows what it means. Hardly ever... Hardly ever anyone says the doctrine of satisfaction. That God was satisfied by pouring out His wrath upon Jesus Christ in our stead. I hope that we are all here today, as already stated, with the attitude of Cornelius, to hear whatever God has required of us. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1 is our theme verse for this series of messages about our church pressing onward and upward to higher ground. The apostle wrote, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk, and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. This is our theme. That as God has left in the New Testament epistles, the instructions for how His churches are to conduct themselves, we would do those things more and more, so that we and this church would be more and more pleasing in His sight, And that we, with a greater and greater degree of confidence, will be ready to meet Him. For He is coming soon, and if He doesn't come very soon, you will leave to meet Him. We shall meet the Lord. We want to preach and apply such a text, which will not be a relaxation of our duties, but a refreshment and reminder of them and a pressing for greater efforts. We want the best church for the Lord Jesus' sake, for our brethren's sake, and for our children's sake that will be here in it. When the Lord is bragging in heaven about churches, we want ours to be on the list. Since in Job chapter 1, he's bragging about men on earth, why should we think that he doesn't from time to time rank his churches? He knew that Job was the best. And he told Satan, Job was the best. And you know that Job is the best. And we want him to take great pleasure in our church, not for our praise in this world, We do want to be praised and accepted by Him, but for His honor and glory in heaven. We want the angels to see the great work of grace that He has done in us rather than their comrades and the change that it's made in our lives. Would the male members of this church 
between 18 and 40 years of age, please stand up. You may be seated. Thank you. You're the future of our church. Amen. And we don't believe in casual worship. And we don't believe in contemporary worship. Don't you let this church change. The God of Exodus 19 hasn't changed a bit. And if you want to meet him confidently, you'll give him his holy reverence while you're here on earth. Stand fast and hold the things that you've been taught and the things that you're about to be taught. God is infinitely holy and higher than all men, and we want to give him his just due. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush? Do you remember in Joshua chapter 5 after the battle of Ai that God told first Moses, then Joshua, that you're standing on holy ground? Get your shoes off. That's the God that we're worshiping. He is holy. And His Son has made us holy and without blame before Him in love. For which we can be thankful. When He showed His glory to Moses... In Exodus chapters 32 and 33, he only revealed his back parts because no man can see the glory of God and live. But he showed him his back parts. Our God is great. And we want to always lift him up in his greatness in our assemblies. We worship Jehovah. Our God is not a cousin, a brother, similar, or anything like Allah. I don't care how many presidents or what president says that they're the same. He is Jehovah. He has an entirely different name. God is not a name. Please don't be confused by just throwing out the three-letter word God because that's not a name. No one will know whether you're talking about Allah, Buddha, Vishnu, or Muhammad, or Jehovah. Let's make it clear. We worship Jehovah. He is God our Father, and His Son is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus means Jehovah is the Savior. The God of heaven, our God of the New Testament, is not the man upstairs. Just this week, I had to deal with a correspondent talking about the man upstairs. We don't have a man upstairs when referring to God our Father. We have a man upstairs, the Lord Jesus Christ, but He's not played with with terms like that. He is the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. The blessed and only potentate. If anything... We owe greater reverence in the New Testament than in the Old Testament because this God has blessed us with greater privileges and revelation. Let me see if I can show you that briefly in some favorite verses from Hebrews. First, chapter 2. The book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Let's just compare. There are many that want to say the God of the Old Testament was the God of Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai. But the God of the New Testament is that great, big, obese, white-haired, lying-down granddaddy in the sky that feeds us cotton candy, that is painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel of the Vatican in Rome by Michelangelo. 
a sodomite, as our most male artists. That is not our God. That is not even a representation in the least way of our God. That is a caricature. That is a devilish, satanic blasphemy of our God. He's not a senile old grandfather in the sky. He's the creator of heaven and earth. I am that I am, infinitely independent of all creatures, has been, is, and forever shall be. Amen. Okay, that's the God of the Old Testament. People say He's different in the New. Really? One thing about our God is that He is immutable. That means He never changes. So what are you talking about? What Bible are you reading? What spirit is infecting you with its poison? Chapter 2 and verse 1, after having presented the Lord Jesus Christ in 14 verses as the Son of God, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. What does that mean if it doesn't mean more? Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. There were two sets of revelation in chapter 1. The revelation God gave through the prophets in verse 1 and the revelation that God gave by His Son, Jesus Christ. Look at that first verse of the first chapter. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. So we come to verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels, this is the Old Testament revelation. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, every one that disobeyed the Old Testament was punished severely, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him, that is the apostles, God bearing them witness and confirming their ministry with great gifts of the Holy Ghost. How about chapter 10? How about chapter 10? We know the application of these verses are primarily, preeminently, for the Jewish believers in the time of Reformation. But they also carry weight with us by looking that God exalts the New Testament revelation as greater than the Old. Chapter 10, verse 26, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? Of how much sore punishment is the question That's why there's a question mark at the end of 29 of how much sore punishment in comparison to the punishment without mercy for despising Moses' law. When we despise Christ, the punishment 
is worse. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 25. Now Exodus 19 has been summarized in this chapter in verse 18. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with darts. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. That was Exodus 19. That was Mount Sinai. That was the Old Testament revelation of the great and glorious God, the Lord Jehovah of heaven. But here's verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, that's the Old Testament under God at Mount Sinai and Moses, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And he goes on, and we'll be back to these verses momentarily. Thank you, Lord. I defy anyone to tell me that the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old. Men were saved under the Old Testament the same way they're saved under the New Testament. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and His all-sufficient substitutionary atonement for us on the cross of Calvary. Most of the Christian world, over 95% of it being very kind, liberal, and compromising, has no regard for reverent worship anymore. They intentionally call it casual worship to avoid and to despise the traditional reverence given the worship of God. Casual worship. There's nothing casual about our God. That we can come boldly into His presence doesn't mean that we come casually into His presence. It means we come boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and living righteous lives. They boast about coming as you are. Those successful men never go as they are anywhere. Successful men modify their appearance for every meeting with anyone. But what about the God of heaven? They attend dressed like they're going to a picnic or will go shopping afterwards. The pulpit is used for jokes, stories, foolish talking, boasting, gamesmanship, and so forth. The music is little or nothing more than a rock concert, often with long-haired femmes performing. They crave numbers, and they'll take anyone, even into the waters of baptism. They forget that Jesus said, Straight gate! narrow way, and few there be that find it. You want to base your ministry on numbers? Jesus said, if you're claiming to be a Christian church, few there be that find it. Because it is straight, but they don't teach it straight. They teach it as wide and as all-encompassing and as inviting, as casual as you can get. The Lord hasn't changed. They've changed just like Paul promised they would. They forget that Paul warned about them that they would no longer endure sound doctrine. 
but would entice men to come with fables and entertainment. Our children are pretty much ignorant of what goes on elsewhere or the trends in church history. They're too young, they've grown up here, or they've spent a good part of their life here, and they do not know what's happened in the last 50 years in our country. The Bible is plain and simple enough for us to know that this is an important matter. Let's turn back to Leviticus chapter 10 and see an example in the pages of Scripture about how reverent men ought to be. And these are two of his ministers. I thank God that I believe the vast majority of you are with me and that we are all together with the Lord. Amen. And that we, looking strange to the world, want to have sober and reverent worship of God. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Aaron just lost two sons. Moses didn't care. Moses told Aaron, this is exactly what God has said to both of us, that when we come before him, we better sanctify him, and we better glorify him before all the people. We better do it the right way. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said unto them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said, And Moses said unto Aaron and unto Eleazar and unto Ithamar, his other sons, Uncover not your heads. Don't take your priestly bonnets off. Neither rend your clothes, lest ye die, and lest wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. And ye shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. You aren't going to quit, and you're not going to tender your resignation right now, because you have the anointing oil of God upon you. You're going to stay at your tasks, and you're not going to bewail those two men. They did not sanctify me. They did not glorify me before Israel. This is the God that we worship. I love Him. Just the way He is. He is the only authority I've ever read about with such absolute and perfect holiness and such absolute and strict severity against all unrighteousness, wickedness, and profanity in His kingdom. Don't we all desire a kingdom where righteousness is enforced? This is it. I love Him. I wouldn't want to change a thing about Him. How could I? He's infinitely perfect in every way. 
Every thought that I've ever had contrary to His Word is nonsense and insane. This is the God we worship. And so we want to come and reverence Him. God hates lightness. They offered strange fire, fire He hadn't commanded. Were they the right men? Were they at the right place? Were they doing it to the right God? Did He say He wanted incense? They didn't bring the right incense. Or they brought it the wrong way. Because of the context, they may have had a couple beers before they went in. See verses 8 through 11? Can you read it? The Lord said unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine nor strong drink. Thou nor thy sons with thee when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation lest ye die. They just die. That could be the explanation. We're not told. I don't care what it is. I just know that if you do anything strange, what does that mean? Different. Right. Different. Unknown. Untaught. Unrequired. Alien. Foreign. To what God's required, you'll die. They died. God doesn't like light ministers. Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. The entire chapter is about false pastors. You can see it in verse 1. Woe be unto the pastors. Throughout Jeremiah 23. I just want verse 32 this time. Behold. I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord. Who is the Lord? That is the Lord God, Jehovah. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord." Here are ministers that by their lightness cause the people to err. By not preaching against sin with the force and power and authority of God's Word. Lightness. I'm against them. Can you find the little book of Zephaniah? Zephaniah chapter 3. It's toward the end. It's before Haggai and it's after Habakkuk. That won't help you very much. But it's just before the end of your Old Testament. It's in front of the book of Zechariah. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 4. Speaking of Judah and Israel and God's judgment against them. Verse 4. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. They're light. You know, I have preached to you before the commandment in the Bible that whosoever sets light by his mother or his father, cursed. Kill him. If you set light about parents, it's a capital crime in God's Word. This is lightness in the house of God, preaching God's Word and in God's worship. Look at Isaiah 56. We want to have a holy church. A holy pulpit, a reverent pulpit, a reverent pastor, and we want to be reverent when we worship the Lord. 
when we come into our assemblies. That doesn't mean we can't be joyful because it's the God of the Bible that should produce joy. It's the God of the Bible and His wonderful revelation that should produce joy. The God of the world and the God of New Spring and the God of these other churches that have such lightness and compromise so much, He doesn't bring any joy because we want a God that punishes evildoers and rewards the righteous and draws the line carefully. Isaiah 56, about ministers again. Verse 10, His watchmen are blind. Israel's watchmen, Israel's pastors are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. Dumb, meaning not stupid, but unable to speak or bark. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. This is a lazy ministry. Yea, they are greedy dogs, which can never have enough. And they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his gain, from his quarter. Come ye, say they, I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow shall be as this day, and much more abundant. This is a lazy group of ministers that are looking at their non-profit profession as some have ridiculed it justifiably so. In my lifetime when I was in banking, But you know, God's ministers are different than this. These watchmen are blind. They're not watching and being vigilant about the dangers coming against God's people. They're like dumb dogs that don't bark. What good's a watchdog if he doesn't bark? If you're going to have a watchdog and God's ministers are like watchdogs, they need to bark. Instead of just asking for wine and enjoying the easy and good life and saying, let's even do more of it tomorrow. Look at Lamentations. After the book of Jeremiah and before the book of Ezekiel. Lamentations, chapter 2. And I read verse 14. Thy prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee, and they have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. They have corrupted the Word of God. They did not teach Israel what was really happening and why they were going to go into captivity because of their sins. They were giving other excuses for it instead of declaring, Thus saith the Lord. Lamentations 2.14 And I have a whole other string of references here that I'll let go. When we come into the house of God, you better be more ready to hear than to think about speaking. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, let your words be few. You're on earth, He's in heaven. Come ready to hear, not thinking about speaking. Lord, help us. We believe that there's a proper attire for Sunday. And it's not specified. We don't have a dress code for Sunday worship. We have a dress code for our women to be modest in our apparel. But turn with me to Genesis chapter 35 and let's see from the pages of Scripture that before the law of Moses, it was just understood that when you're going to go meet God, you dress up a little bit. If you were going for an interview, you would dress up. If you're going on a date before you were married, you would dress up. 
If you were going to meet anyone important, you would dress up. If you were going to a nice event, you would dress up. This is the Lord. It was just understood. Genesis 35, verse 1, God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, that's the house of God, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household, and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. That second verse is what I want, just to point out that Jacob understood that if he was going to go to Bethel, the house of God, that he should get rid of all their compromises with false idols of Canaan, which is hard to even imagine, but his family was a mess. And to be clean, that is to wash and bathe and change your garments. Get dressed up a little bit for the Lord's sake. Then we come over to Exodus chapter 19, which you read last evening that had the same instruction for us. Exodus 19. Verse 10, the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. Verse 14, And Moses went down from the mount unto the people, and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day, come not at your wives. Now there is nothing in the New Testament that tells us about what we're to wear when we come into an assembly. What the New Testament does is leave it entirely up to church and pastoral judgment. It doesn't say anything about the order of assemblies. Nothing. Except in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, when it's dealing with the gifts of the Holy Ghost for that particular period of time, that the prophets and tongues and praying in an unknown language was to be carefully guarded. It leaves it up to us to do it reverently and acceptable in the sight of God. So this is one of the things we do to be reverent. And our fathers in the faith have always done it. Because you're going to meet God. And I'm going to give you some principles as to why we arrive at this conclusion momentarily. The, The New Testament doesn't say a lot about a lot of things. The New Testament doesn't say to discipline your children corporally. I've tried to explain some of these things to you. Why would he? That'd be a waste of ink. Solomon's already written it down over and over and over again. And so when the Bible says fathers are to bring their children up in the admonition of the Lord, what is the admonition of the Lord? Psalm 3411, teach them the fear of God. Psalm 19, Psalm 13, Psalm 20, I mean Proverbs 19, 13, 23, and other places to use the rod in their correction. It doesn't have to be mentioned in the New Testament. We're not bringing forth the Old Testament, any of its moral requirements of Moses' law. We're bringing forth principles of righteousness just like the tithe. The tithe isn't taught in the New Testament. It just says give. Well, what's a good starting point for giving? You go back before the law, Abraham, how much did he give to Melchizedek? 2%? He gave a tithe. How much did Jacob promise God in Genesis 28? A tenth. What is a tenth? It's a tithe. 
What did Moses have? Several tithes. It's just a good starting point. Why would you think of any other number except that you're a scorner and you're rebellious and you're stingy? Why would you think of any other number? Since that's the number in the Bible. And so the Bible doesn't tell us that you need a white shirt on, button-down collar, and a tie on Sundays. Every culture is going to be different. There's cultures that have had Christians in them that didn't wear shirts with button-down collars or collars of any kind whatsoever. You just wear what's a little bit better than Saturday's attire. So that we can show the Lord a difference. Jacob knew it. God required it. And so when it says, with reverence and godly fear, you fear your boss's boss's boss. If you had a lunch date with him, you would be dressed. If you were called to Washington to meet with the president, if you were called to Columbia to meet with the governor, if you were called to meet the sheriff of Greenville County, you would be dressed up. And they're so low, the difference between them and our God is infinite. We dress up a little bit for them. You know, we have found it interesting that the expression or the idiom in American English is to wear your Sunday best. The expression Sunday best. Where did it come from? Your best clothes were reserved for Sunday. That's where it came from. Because that's what you wore on Sunday when you were going to go into the house of the Lord and meet the Lord. You know, it's a very small part of what I'm talking about right now. Remember that I said that. It's a very small part of what I'm talking about right now. But it's part of it. Successful men dress up for interviews, speeches, honors, authority. Why wouldn't we do that for God? We don't wear tuxedos or fancy hats or anything smacking of a show in the flesh in this church. And we never will. I'll crush it. We don't have any clothes horses in here, men or women. There are churches that do that. We don't want either ditch. We want the crown of the road. Right. We don't care what our visitors wear. We never say a thing to them. Now there are a few ways by which we can be solidly established in reverent worship. Go to Malachi chapter 1 with me. Malachi chapter 1. There are several principles about this reverent worship that we want to have. And I've already mentioned one, but here I want to show you the Scriptures, and hopefully reading it last night reminded you of it. Malachi chapter 1, verse 14. But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. If you have suits in your closet that you wear to interviews or to special events for you, why wouldn't you want to wear one on the Lord's Day to meet the Lord? I know why. Because you don't fear Him. Verse 8. If ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? If you offer less than the best from your flock... Isn't it evil? If we give him less than our best, isn't it evil? These are rhetorical questions. Yes, it's evil. And here's the rule that we're getting. The principle of righteousness for reverence. Offer it now unto thy governor. This is God speaking. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. Try it on your governor. 
That's why I use illustrations that you dress up to interview with somebody so low, they are your boss. Do you know how low that is? There isn't anybody lower than your boss. But you dress up for him or her? Try it. Try to go in there with jeans with holes in them and some cheap shirt. The Lord says to, this is the way we should reason, so this is the way we reason. Right. And right now we're talking about reverence in the house of God, and so we reason this way. This is one of the first principles. God's a great king. He deserves the best. And like any earthly ruler, we would give him the best, but we should give God certainly the best. So, you know, our, our demeanor, our decorum, our timeliness, our attention during the service, our clothing, our preparedness, our face washed, our alertness, our awakeness, you would be most worried about every one of them in the presence of an important person on earth. Let's be conscientious about them in the presence of God. Okay, let's go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and finish out those three verses there that we left from earlier. This is our second principle. It's a New Testament command. It's not really a principle. It's a rule. It's a statement. It's a declaration. It's a description. It's a definition of the kingdom that we're part of. Verse 28, Hebrews 12, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. This one doesn't change. This one lasts forever. We just fade right on into the presence of God. Let us have grace. Let us take the grace that God's given us. Let us live and worship by grace. Let us have grace. Whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. The New Testament description of God that we worship in His kingdom is a consuming fire that is quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 4 because God doesn't change. Our God is a consuming fire. The Apostle Paul pulls that forward lest you might think that He's changed. And we should serve Him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. If you don't serve Him with reverence, He doesn't accept it. If you don't serve Him with godly fear, He doesn't accept it. He doesn't care about your heart. Your heart in a pair of pajamas doesn't impress Him. When you're worshiping Him, when we're coming into His house and into His temple, look at 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. This is interesting. I showed you some things last Lord's Day that were interesting about how services should be a place for revival. And it was 1 Corinthians 14. Because if an unbeliever or an unlearned person comes in, we want the content and everything happening here to be of such a sort that it convicts, condemns, and brings about his conversion. I mean, verse 20, verses 14 through 16 tell us that we want them to fall down on their face. It's verses 25. Verse 25, the the amen is in verses 14 through 16. It's verses 24 through 26 that he'll fall down on his face and worship God and report that God is in you of a truth if we keep the content of our services just right. 
And Paul says you'll keep the content just right, and that means get rid of all the tongues that are going on because you sound like a bunch of babbling barbarians. So get rid of the tongues because unbelievers or unlearned come in, they don't know what you're talking about. How can they ever fall down on their faces and be convicted and condemned for their sins? But now I want to show you something else in this chapter. That was from last Lord's Day. It's at the end, verses 32 through 40. I want you to look at, I don't have time to read all these verses, but look at verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. That is one of the ways we show reverence to God is that everything is done decently and in order in our assemblies. Now it started in verse 32. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. God the Holy Spirit gave the gift of prophecy to men called prophets. And He gave some apostles and some prophets. Prophets were the second highest gift in the New Testament church. But the Spirit that was in them that could burst forth with truth inspired by God was under their control. And in order to keep services decent and in order, prophets were to restrain the Holy Spirit within them. That is how important it is to God that His services be decent and in order, which is part of our reverence to Him. And to worship Him with godly fear. We don't want to do anything strange, different, or foreign in His worship. And so we're preaching the Word right now. And we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We didn't sing Happy Birthday this morning. And we're not going to sing Happy Birthday next Sunday morning. And we're not going to hand out pencils for attendance. Or do the thing, the one thousand and one things they have invented to degrade the worship of God. This is potent right here. Verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. And that includes the gifts of the Holy Ghost. You know what Paul has to say if you think otherwise? Here's what he has to say. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge, this is verse 37, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord, and I couldn't care less about your opinion, questions, concerns, or worries. I love Paul. Amen. He's the apostle of the Gentiles, and we should have the very same attitude that he had. He says to the Corinthians, this great big church in Corinth, what? Verse 36, what? Came the word of God out from you? You people don't know anything, haven't taught anything, and God hasn't revealed anything through you. Or came it unto you only. The only way you know anything is because I taught it to you. Now that's reverent. That cuts off questions. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Paul. You know, 1 Corinthians 7 says that if you're serious about worshiping, the Apostle Paul just assumes it, that sometimes you'll fast and avoid having sexual relations with your wife. It says so in verse 5. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Defraud ye not one the other, except to be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. There's a time to be so focused on preparing to worship God. Newt, Newt, isn't it something? This is New Testament, isn't it? Do all of you have enough upstairs to be able to connect Exodus chapter 19, verses 14 and 15 with 1 Corinthians 7, 5, that it's in both places? That there's a time not to come at your wives if you're very serious about preparing and praying to meet God? 
Paul made the connection. I didn't. Paul put it right there. Right. Look at James chapter 4. These are the principles of reverence in the New Testament and old. James 4. Our Father in heaven loves our worship. He has completely paid for us. We are his little children. We can enter into his courts with praise and thanksgiving. We can come boldly before him because of Jesus Christ. But when we come, let's come rejoicing with trembling. Not rejoicing with giddiness. Rejoicing with trembling. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Verse 8 of James 4. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Us being here this morning, we are drawing nigh to God in a public, formal, congregational way. And God will draw nigh to us. But notice what goes with it. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. And purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he shall lift you up. Okay. It's pretty serious. To draw nigh to God and for him to draw nigh to you requires you to get rid of your laughing, giddy approach to coming into the house of God. It doesn't sound very casual, does it? In verses 8 through 10. To cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, to be afflicted, to mourn, to weep, to let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness, to get, to confess your sins and to come into his holy presence with your sins confessed. Hebrews chapter 13. You say, I don't see it. Okay. I'm sorry for you. You need glasses. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. God's ministers are going to give an account to God for their lifestyle and what they did in their pulpits. But you should be following their faith in matters that are not expressly with a tsunami of Bible evidence sufficient for you to go against them. This is true in both Testaments. Look at Ezekiel 44 because I'd like to show what one of their chief duties is, and that's to make a difference between the holy and the profane. There's a lot of profane worship going on now in America, and we don't want any of it. Exodus chapter 44, speaking about the priests of God under the Old Testament. Verse 23, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. There's a lot of pages. Let's try it again. Ezekiel 44, it's okay. Maybe we'll have a big screen one of these days. And I can just push a button and have have us all there. This passage is about the priests and how God expects them to function and what their duties are. Verse 23, They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. So back, you know, Hebrews 13, 7, Remember them that have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God. Those are preachers whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation that we're going to give an account to God if we've strayed from the Word of God. What can we do in our church to make sure that we keep a reverent church? We've started well, brethren. 
I'm thankful to be a member of this church and part with you in the way that we do things in our assemblies. We've started well, but we cannot question foolishly, unlearnedly, resent, compromise, or get creative about God's worship. We want to be old-fashioned because we want to seek the old paths like the Bible tells us. We want to keep thee and thou in our Bibles. Is everybody in agreement? That we keep thee and thou in our Bibles and don't go to these newfangled Bible versions that have you that have dumbed down the Bible? You know, not everyone here even knows what I'm talking about, but the these and the thous are very important because the second person pronouns are distinguished in the Bible between singular and plural. Every T pronoun is a singular person. Thee, thy, thine, thou, singular. When it's you, ye, your, that's plural. When we use our modern dumbed-down English, we just use you. If I were to say right now, you need to get a haircut, you wouldn't know who I was talking to. I love the Bible. Our King James Bible. You go into a bookstore and you say, you, hold, you go up to the clerk. What's the clerk's IQ? If, the, if they've got the air conditioning on and it's down to 68, what's the clerk's IQ? Somewhere less than that. This King James Bible and this NIV or this new King James, what's the difference? They've just gotten rid of the these and the thous. Well, why would they dumb down the Bible? Hebrew and Greek distinguish between singular and plural pronouns in both languages, and so does high English in which our King James Bibles were written. We want these and thous. Do you mind them in our songs when we sing thee and thou and thine when we're singing to the Lord? It adds to reverence. And it's more scriptural and it's more reverent when we do it that way. How... And our prayers, do you mind when somebody gets in the pulpit and uses thee, thou, or thine for the Lord? Or should we use, hey, you? Let's keep our Bible songs, prayers, gender specific. Do you know how many Bibles and songbooks have come out in the last 30 years that get rid of the male gender for God, angels? The Bible is gender specific. It is male always for God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and angels. It's not neuter. And it's not female. We do not know God, our Heavenly Mother. We dress up to honor God. Enough's been said about that. We, Because we want to be sober. We want to seek the old paths. We want to be different from Saturday and so forth. We want to have a quiet time before our services like we do because the Bible says, Be still and know that I am God. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Habakkuk 2.20 I love our prayer time. Thank you, Adam, for leading it again this morning of the men in the back room to prepare ourselves to come into His worship and to pray for His blessing upon us while we're in it. We disdain happy birthday. We don't sing it in this church. We disdain patriotic songs and other carnal foolish distractions. We don't sing the star-spangled banner because in no way does it worship God. We disdain a Sunday school mentality. Brethren, there's so much that could be said. The Sunday school mentality bears a great deal of responsibility over the last 50 to 100 years for destroying the reverence of God by everyone starting off Sunday with one hour to an hour and a half of a more frivolous, childish, elementary, foolish approach to God. Now, parents love it because as soon as they open the car doors in the parking lot, the children can buzz away and go run into their classes and have graham crackers and milk and play with flannel graph figures on a board with other little geniuses like themselves. It's, 
it has seriously affected right. worship. It started there because that's not biblical. There's no evidence for that in the Bible. To have fun and games with scissors and Elmer's glue. So we don't have a Sunday school. That mentality and environment created in most churches, by the time you've been there an hour and a half, and see there's only a minority of you that even know what I am talking about. A small minority of you that know what I am talking about, that the Sunday school mentality and environment prepares you to go into church you're already lo- you're loosey goosey because Sunday school is always loosey goosey. I mean, they can have pie throwing contests in Sunday school, all sorts of balloons and pencils and awards, and jumping up and down and singing this little light of mine and do Lord or oh, do Lord, do remember me, and just reduce it down until the time you get to church. How in the world can you get sober after that? Most of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Amen. But been there, done that. And seen it many, many times. And have read about it many, many times. Sunday school contests. Left side against the right side. Rah, rah, rah. If my team will win, I'll carry the pastor across the platform on my back. Very common. You say in the house of God? Yeah, Baptist churches. Presbyterians know better. Oh, that hurts me. Just give me a second. It's pitiful. I'm I'm so thankful to be a part of this church. No Sunday school mentality. No Sunday school environment. The kids have been running around playing musical chairs. You know, of course, they're playing it to do, Lord. So as long as you're playing musical chairs and the music is do, Lord... It's holy. We want to be reverent. What did, what did Paul say? With reverence and godly fear. You know, after Sunday school, we denied junior church. You know what most toward all churches would have done before I started preaching? They would have invited all the kiddies to come up, yep. and you can go out the side door and play Duck, Duck, Goose next door. The Lord's been very kind to us. I love Him. And you remember those four crossings of the Red Sea that we had? Yes, we have crossed the Red Sea a number of times to get to where we are today. Only by your wisdom and grace toward us. I'd have pinned a tail on a donkey as fast as anyone when I was in Sunday school. We want a place of revival, which was trait number 12, and it's best served by a place of reverence as well. Because the kind of revival that we want goes hand in hand with reverence. We can't allow our church to become a Bible study. Church isn't a Bible study. Remember from last Sunday? Church ought to be conducted in such a way that a person can come in and have the secrets of their heart made manifest and falling down they confess that God is in you of a truth. Sunday school, I mean, uh, a Bible study mentality and a Bible study environment has several errors with it. You're going to hear about it again before the day's over. But one of them is it's not very reverent. We just don't come in, flop down, open our Bibles, open a notebook, take notes, because it's not a college class. You know, when you go to a college class, you get there in the nick of time, you walk in, flop down, wearing whatever you feel like wearing, listen to the lecture, get up, and walk out. It's over. Church isn't anything like that. Right. There's a body life. 
You have no life with a fellow student at a, at, in a college course. You have a body life. You have things you're supposed to be doing with one another. You know, infants and little children do not benefit by being in our services, and they cause distraction unless they're well-trained. If you're sick and cannot control your coughing, stay at home, cough to yourself. Get rid of personal habits like yawning, smacking lips, clicking pens, and so forth that distract and discourage those around you. You just want to be reverent. You wouldn't do that in the Oval Office, would you? Would you do it in the Oval Office? Well, the difference between the man in the Oval Office and our God is infinite. If you have to play with your children to occupy them, they're not old enough to be here. Never come late. God sees this clearly as offensive, for you would not do it to others. If you cannot get up for God on time, pick a church with two services and aim for the first one. Sober amens, done solemnly and at the right time, certainly lend themselves to reverence. I'm thankful for the Primitive Baptists for getting rid of a whole bunch of junk of Sunday School's Junior Church and a lot of nonsense, but uh, we are nothing like the Primitive Baptists because they know nothing about reverence. Let me tell you. Their song service is a joke in every single church I've read about or know about, and I've never heard a testimony otherwise. They start their song service a half an hour before the preaching service, and they call it singing and preaching, and you can get there whenever you feel like during the singing. The singing, if you see singing in a Primitive Baptist church, the first song that is sung at that appointed one half hour before the preaching, there's only a few people singing. The rest are just wandering in, greeting each other, hugging each other, passing submarine sandwiches back and forth, bringing their pots and dishes for their potluck that's going to be held in the grounds. It's obnoxious. Obnoxious. I'm trying to be fair to all parties. They're all wrong. The singing part of our service should not be looked down upon or despised as anything inferior to the preaching part of our service. It's where we teach and admonish and speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We should not sing a song until everyone is in here and focused, prepared, praying, attentive, and ready to worship. It's just not done as everybody wanders in and makes themselves comfortable over a 30-minute period of time. It's part of our worship to God. It's part of our worship to each other. For anyone that I've just hurt their feelings, listen, my father's sitting up here that was my pastor with a Sunday school. I hope that you'll all be understanding of everything that I'm going to say because I'm going to say the truth no matter who is sitting in this audience. Thank you, Father. You're my man. There better not be any primitive Baptists in here that are offended. I'm going to show you how merciful I am. I have a dear brother of mine that went two times to the Cincinnati Primitive Baptist Church, which is their proudest, greatest, most precious church. And he wrote a detailed account in the last couple of years of every minute of what took place in that church. And he was nauseated. He had to go to the parking lot to keep from throwing up in the assembly. He wrote it all down in two massive essays for me. And you have not seen them or heard them. Because I didn't know what profit would come from it. But I just want to share a little bit with you right now. The song service is as important as the preaching service. And they both go together and they are part of what make up a New Testament church. I'm sorry if sometimes it looks like I'm a little bit more intense than other times. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to say things that might hurt somebody's feelings. There's only one being that I don't want to hurt his feelings. 
And he doesn't want us wandering around hugging each other and talking about cutting the grass yesterday while there's five people up front singing. Okay, can I cover church attendance in two minutes? Church attendance is for God's glory. The profit of others, your profit, little else. God is glorified by our service to Him by coming together. Church services are to help and exhort and provoke each other. We'll go to one passage. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. Let me just mention it briefly. It's part of our reverence is that we're careful about attending church every time that we reasonably should. God sees the choices that we make that are marginal choices. And we shouldn't marginalize God's house. And it's not me, and I don't take attendance. I just know by watching who's here and who cares the most about being here. And who makes marginal choices to be here and who makes marginal choices not to be here. Because I want you to get before the Lord and have made all marginal choices for Him. Hebrews 10, 23-25 Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Those three verses tell us that church attendance is to help us hold fast our profession of faith in perilous times of backsliding and compromise. It's not to hear the preacher. That's part of it. But the part in this passage is exhorting one another because it's holding fast our profession in verse 23 It's considering and provoking each other in verse 24. And in verse 25, it's exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. We each need each other to have an assembly where we're all present and we're all enthusiastically participating with each other, whether it's congregationally or privately and personally, after or before the services. It's what lifts us up and helps us flush the previous 160 hours of the week. David, one thing. Have I desired of the Lord? You know, my desire as your pastor is for each of you, men, women, children, to be like David. God's favorite. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Psalm 84 and verse 10, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's the spirit I want you to have. Psalm 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us... Let us go into the house of the Lord. Because David was often away from Jerusalem, he longed for it. You can read about his longing in Psalm 42 and Psalm 63. You know, current Southern Baptist statistics tell us how bad it is in most churches that only 40% of their membership will be in attendance at their primary morning service. Oh, their only service. Because they've given up on Wednesday nights and most have given up on Sunday nights. 40%. Where's the other 60 Because no one cares. Why are the 60s still in the books? Because the church doesn't care. We care. And we're going to keep caring. Of course we're merciful. Of course we're merciful. You hardly ever hear anything from me about it. 
except to commend you on Wednesday evenings when I see practically the whole church here. It's wonderful. Amen. 40% on Sunday mornings. You ought to read their statistics. I'm glad that some people are really detail freaks and they like to collect everything. Southern Baptist Church has collected all. It rolls up to the county office. It rolls up to the state office. It rolls up to the national office. And you can read this whole myriad of statistics about their attendance. 40% at their prime Sunday morning service. 30% of their members are called non-resident. What they mean by that is, we don't know where they reside. We no longer have any way of communicating with them. We don't have a cell phone number. We don't have an address. One-third. If I took a chainsaw and cut off one-third of your body, how effective would you be? You going to run around the church a couple times for me that I can time you with my stopwatch? One-third gone? But remember, 60% are gone. It's just that one-third of them, they don't even know how to find them. How many come to the evening service? Half of the morning. So we're down to 20%. How many come to the Wednesday night service? Half of that. What are we down to now? 10%. When you make a marginal decision to skip, you show no zeal for the Lord. Because zeal for the Lord is doing above and beyond. Zeal for the Lord is doing something extra. It's making a marginal choice for Him. You discourage the church because your place in the pew is empty. You discourage the pastor. You slight the Lord. You starve yourself. And you hurt your children by the example. Marginal church attendance is one clue for a carnal Christian or a strange child. That should be obvious. How can anyone seeking God's kingdom first ever marginalize attendance? But seek ye first the kingdom of God. You know, church attendance is not a matter of convenience. It's a matter of conviction, choice, and zeal. It's just part of reverence. You do a good job. Do I wish it was better sometimes? Yes. Then it's not for me. It's for the Lord. What can we do better? Attendance isn't to keep your membership, though we do exclude if you skip enough. Attendance is not for your family. Since you come here for others, you've had 160 hours during the week to talk to your family. Attendance is to worship God, to learn by His teacher, and to build up Christ's kingdom. Wednesday night assemblies are as important as binding as any Sunday service we have ever had. It says, forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. We assemble on Wednesday nights. We made a choice to do that. I hope you can plan vacations sometimes around Sunday services if possible to show him and others your zeal. This is very important to me, to the Lord, to us. Pray and prepare before being punctual and participatory. All show God your zeal. If when you're here, you have prayed, prepared, you're punctual, and you're participating with all your might, then when you miss a few... Who cares? Go in peace. I hope you understand that balance. You know, when we're here, let's give him everything we've got. He'll be merciful on us for missing once in a while. And I hope I'm not speaking out of both sides of my mouth. I do want us to give him our best attendance within reason. Never forget the body life that you should promote and prosper by your contribution when you're here. 
just coming in the door, taking a seat, sitting there, listening to the sermon, singing, and going home is not attending. It's the bare minimum legal sense of the word attending, but the Bible sense of coming together is to consider one another and to provoke one another to love and to good works and to exhort one another. All right there in those three verses. Those that come in, sit down, talk with fam, and such like are not real members. When you come to church, if you need an assignment for yourself, make it up before you come on Saturday or Sunday morning on the way here with your wife or the mother of children. Write out some assignments. Tell your children they need to go talk to somebody outside of their age group. It's got to be over 5 or 10 years younger or over 5 and 10 years older. You've got to go talk to somebody that you haven't talked to in a while. Just go talk to them and say, it's so good to see you here. It's been a great day in the house of the Lord. Nothing more than that. What if everyone did that to two people? You know what we don't do? Would you all don't stand at the would you all please stand up and turn to three people behind you and shake their hands and say, God is good. We don't do any of those games. Right. Hopefully we left those in the second grade. Because they're about a second grader's mentality. In our children, let's train excitement, importance, and duties of what it means to come to church at home by weekly inculcation of the glory of this place and what we ought to do while we're here. Thank you for your kind attention. I'm sorry that it was so long. Two more traits for our church going into the future to keep and preserve and improve in. Reverent worship and good attendance. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.